Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn in your life. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. Also, be sure to stick around for the end of every episode where I'm going to reflect on the conversation and offer actionable coaching insights to have a real impact on your life. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. If you think about it from an evolutionary basis, well, our species did not evolve to be constantly happy. That makes no sense, right? We evolved to be perpetually perturbed. That's what keeps us striving and hunting and searching to make our lot better. And that's how we succeeded as a species is to always want more. So we can channel that discomfort into traction rather than distraction. That's the big idea. There's nothing wrong with you if you feel discomfort, if you feel these emotions. It's perfectly healthy and normal and should be encouraged. Yep. It's about channeling them in the right way. Hey, U-Turners, I've got quite the treat for you today, and it is Niriyal. He is a former Stanford lecturer, and he just wrote a new book called Indistractable, all about how to control your attention, which is what we're going to talk about, and how to not be distracted, of course. And he's also the best-selling author of Hooked. Um, His stuff is incredible. I've spoken on a panel with him before, and I remember being really captivated by his knowledge. Nir, thank you so much for making the time to talk to all of us. Oh my gosh, so good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I, I want to ask you what got you so interested, um, and, and also just your time at Stanford. What pulled you into this sort of content, helping people with focus? Yeah, so I taught at Stanford. I taught a course based on my first book, uh, which is all about how to build habit-forming products. And so what I uh, used to teach was all about how do you build the kind of technologies that create habits in people's lives. And the idea was, you know, we can use the best of uh, the psychology of how Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp uh, are built to be so engaging. What if we use that same psychology to help people form healthy habits like exercising more, using an app like FitBod, or getting kids hooked? to um, education in the classroom with a product like Kahoot uh, or all sorts of things that we can do to help people build healthy habits in their lives. So that's that's what I taught in terms of uh, the, the, the product design community uh, with, when it came to my first book. But then a few years ago after Hooked was published, I noticed that I was getting distracted by many of the companies that I used as case studies in my book. Uh, I was with my daughter at one point. I remember uh, it was just one afternoon together when we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I can answer, I can tell you the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what she said. Because in that moment, 
I was distracted. I was looking at my phone and my daughter got the message that whatever was on my device was more important than she was. And she left the room to go play with some toy outside. Mm-hmm. And I felt horrible about that. But if I'm totally honest with you, that wasn't the only time it happened. Uh, it not only happened with my daughter on multiple occasions, it would happen at work, right? Mm-hmm. I'd sit down at my desk and I'd do stuff that I didn't need to do. I'd check email and Slack channels or you know whatever else that wasn't the task at hand. And this was really impacting my relationships. It was impacting my work performance. And I decided I really wanted to get to the bottom of why we keep getting distracted. And I, I was really curious to see, was it really the technology that was at fault or was there something deeper going on? Okay. And I know that um, one of the biggest breakthroughs that I had around presence for myself was I was noticing that I didn't remember a lot. Like, I, I, and I have this story that my memory wasn't that good. And it wasn't until recently that I realized it wasn't that my memory was bad. It's that I'm not being present. So I can't remember what I wasn't paying attention to. You know, oh, that's a terrific point. Terrific point. Yeah. That we, you know, that, that's kind of the problem with distraction is that we don't realize how much better we could be if we just focused on the task at hand. Uh, there's this fascinating study they did with uh, nurses in uh, UCSF where these nurses uh, were making medication mistakes. They were giving uh, patients the wrong dosage or the wrong medication. Uh, of course, you know, not intentionally. This was this was this was all by mistake. It was human error. And then when they did the study, they realized the reason this was happening was because the nurses were being interrupted on average ten times per dosing round. And the the funny thing is, it's not funny. It's actually quite sad. Was that the nurses afterwards? thought that they were doing a great job, right? They didn't realize they had made these mistakes. It was only you know, when something terrible happened that they said, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe I made that mistake. But the reason they were making these mistakes were because of all these distractions. And of course, this parallels everyone's life, right? We, we think we're doing great at work. We think we're, you know, we're winning at life, but we don't realize how much better our work output would be, just like these nurses didn't realize all the mistakes they were making. We don't un- understand how much better life would be if we did what we said we were going to do in an indistractable way. Beautiful. And I also think a lot of people listening, like they've tuned into these episodes on U-Turn podcasts because they want to find their purpose or get more connected to what they belong to as far as their career fit. And it's interesting because I think some people are easily distractible because they just don't want to be where they are. So I know the ultimate hack is to like where you are as a starting point, but uh, regardless, everybody wants to create better output. And I know that you ha- had offered this first point of mastering the internal triggers. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means for everybody who wants to become indistractable? Yeah, absolutely. So you really hit the nail on the head here. And this is a, a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, which is that we love to blame our technology for causing these distractions. And some of them do clearly, because this is what we call an external trigger. An external trigger is a ping, a ding, a ring, something that prompts you towards distraction. But in my research, that took me five years to write this book to really get down to the core of what was going on, what I discovered is that most distraction starts from within. Hmm. That these are called the internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable psychological states that we seek to escape from. And so if you think about it, when we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check the news, Pinterest, Reddit, YouTube, whatever the case might be. We use these products because we want to feel something different. And that is the source of the vast majority of distraction in our day. And guess what? It's not a new problem. Plato, 2,500 years ago, talked about this very same problem. He called it a the tendency to do things against our better interests. 
And so distraction has been with us for a very, very long time. It always will be with us. And if we don't deal with the fact that we are using these distractions to escape discomfort, we will always find distraction somewhere. And so that really has to be the first step is to master our internal triggers to make sure that our internal triggers prompt us towards traction, things we want to do versus distraction, things that take us off track. Mm, And that brings us into, and I know that there's probably even more that I want to ask you about as it relates to internal triggers. Like is what, what is it? Are there some indicators for somebody who's listening right now that maybe they're falling into an internal trigger or, or an external distraction that when they don't even notice that they are? Well, everything that we do, uh, all human motivation is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. And, and this is kind of, this goes against what I think most people uh, believe when it comes to motivation. When you ask most people, well, you know, what, what motivates us? They'll tell you some version of carrots and sticks, right? It's, it's about uh, pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. But neurologically speaking, that is not true. Neurologically speaking, everything you do, everything you do is about the desire to escape discomfort. Even the desire to feel good, right? Even the desire for pleasure is itself psychologically destabilizing, right? Wanting, craving, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically that's exactly what's going on. So if all behavior is prompted by desire to escape discomfort, I'm not talking about physical discomfort. I'm talking about psychological discomfort, right? (laughs) These feelings that we don't want to feel. If all behaviors is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, what that means therefore is that time management is pain management. Mm. And so this is a critical, critical lesson. Everything we do, right, everything we do, we are doing to escape some kind of feeling we don't want to feel. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. We can channel that discomfort. One of my beefs with the self-help industry these days is that there's so many people out there that sell us happiness as if if we're not always happy, there's something wrong with us. Yeah, it's so toxic. That is is so untrue. In fact, if you think about it from an evolutionary basis, we don't, our species did not evolve to be constantly happy. That makes no sense, right? We evolved to be perpetually perturbed. That's what keeps us striving and hunting and searching to make our lot better. And that's how we succeeded as a species is to always want more. So we can channel that discomfort into traction rather than distraction. That's the big idea. There's nothing wrong with you if you feel discomfort, if you feel these emotions, it's perfectly healthy and normal and should be encouraged. It's about channeling them in the right way. Really interesting, especially because I've I've written about this, that I think that there's just, uh, it's an infection in the personal development industry is this encouragement for positivity and no space for the human experience, honestly. And I love that you're bringing this up. And it's interesting because the more you're talking, the more I think, wow, the work that personal development leaders are really doing when they're focused on the right things is powerful because ultimately the essence of personal development is what are you avoiding and how can you let yourself feel it because then you're free. And um, and I love that because the more you're talking about these triggers and these distractions, it sounds like what's keeping people from their freedom is not wanting to experience the pain that personal development is telling you, hey, let yourself feel this and then you won't be held hostage by it. That's, that's a great point. And in fact, there's uh, there's this the science research or there's this research that shows that any analgesic is potentially addictive, meaning anything that solves pain will addict someone out there. Uh, and we see this with the most mundane things, right? People get addicted to Tylenol, people get addicted to Q-tips, people get addicted to all sorts of things. And I think there is a certain type of personality out there that's getting addicted to the analgesic of self-help telling you don't feel bad. 
right? Yeah. Med- meditate your problems away. Now, that's I'm, I'm not anti-meditation. I, I think meditation is great. The research shows it's fantastic. If it, and if it works for you, do it. But that doesn't mean that we should meditate everything away. Sometimes we have to solve the source of the discomfort. If we work in a crappy workplace culture, if we have family troubles that need our attention, what a lot of people do is they turn to something to escape, whether that's you know, getting out of their heads through through meditation, through whether it's getting out of their heads through uh, a drink, whether it's getting out of their heads by being on YouTube too much or Facebook too much. Now, none of these things are bad. I don't want people to think, oh, my God, he's calling uh, meditation a, a drug. I'm not saying that these things are harmful. I'm saying that if we don't understand why we are using these things and we use them to excess, then that's where the problems start. Mm, so powerful and so needed for people to hear this. And when you talk about making time for traction, tell me a little bit about what the starting point for that looks like, because I know that there's all these internal triggers. And those of you who are taking notes on how to control your attention and change your life, number one was master these internal triggers. So um, I would offer probably as a coach to say, what are some triggers that you're noticing in your environment, just so that you have that basic awareness. And then moving into two near, can you tell us a little bit about um, traction? Sure, absolutely. So let, let's talk about what the definition of traction, or sorry, of distraction is, so that we understand really what we're talking about here. The best way to understand what distraction is is to understand the opposite of distraction. The opposite of distraction is not focus. That's what you know, most people say. The opposite of distraction is focus. Not really. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the entomology of the world word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. It is traction. So traction and distraction both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Mm. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not what you are doing with intent. So this is really important for a few reasons. One it frees us from this moral hierarchy that a lot of people tell us that what you do with your time, that's a, that's a waste. That's frivolous. But what I do with my time, no, that's morally superior. So, you know, you being on, on Instagram, that's bad. Me watching football for three hours, that's good. No, it's ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with either of them as long as you do them with intent on your schedule and not because you got some ping or ding or because you felt bored and you didn't know what else to do with your fingers and your brain. That's if you plan to do this stuff with your with intent, it's wonderful. So how do you do that? You turn your values into time by making time for traction. Wow. And this involves making time in your day for anything that's consistent with your values. If you want to spend time on Instagram, do it. There's nothing wrong with it, but make time for it. So in my calendar, I, I let me back up a minute. I used to constantly get distracted by social media that I would use it all the time, even when I didn't really want to. Yeah. And the reason was because I didn't have time for it in my day. So today on my calendar, every evening is my social media time. I plan it like I plan an appointment with uh, with a friend or, or you know a dentist visit or whatever. It's on my calendar. And now I don't have to feel guilty about it because I turned something that was previously a distraction into traction. So what we want to do here is to look at our values in three domains of our life. And it's not up to me to tell you what your value should be. It's really up to you. The three domains start with you. You're at the center. Then around that is your relationships. And finally, your work. And what we want to do is to basically start with our week. So as opposed to looking at, you know, five-year plans and big, hairy goals, instead, let's just talk about next week, okay? Next week 
how much time do you want for the values that you have as they concern you? You know, if, if personal health is one of your values, do you have time for proper sleep, proper nutrition? Do you have time to exercise? If, that, if those are your values, I'm not telling you they should be, but if those are your values, where are those values expressed on your calendar? Then your relationships. If being there for your friends is important, do you have time to regularly catch up? Or do you tell your friends, oh yeah, let's get coffee sometime, and it never happens. Do you have regular occasions to get together with people who you love and who love you? And then finally with work. You know, work today is, is spent, uh, most of our day is spent reacting all day, just meetings and emails, meetings and emails. That's about 75% of what the average knowledge worker does every single day is just those two tasks. But what about all the other stuff you have to do? Like, for example, think. Do you have time in your calendar to sit down and think, to strategize, to come up with novel solutions to hard problems? If that's part of your job, where is that time on your calendar? And so this is really the basis of this process of, of um, making time for traction is making what's called a time box calendar. And I'll, I'll give you a link in the show notes that makes it really easy. I have a free tool that you don't even have to log in for. It's, it's totally free. Anybody can use it. And so the big idea here is that when you put down what you want to do on paper, then for the first time you can look at that and say, ah, everything on my calendar is traction. Anything that is not that is distraction. Uh. Even the stuff that feels worky, I mean, this is the stuff that would always get me. I'd sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. Now I'm going to do that thing I've been procrastinating on right after I check email. <laughs> yeah, right? because email feels worky, right? That's kind of a work type thing. <laughs> but of course, if it's not what you plan to do with your time, it is just as much of a distraction. That's why so many people, you know, they only focus on what's urgent as opposed to what's also important. And sometimes the stuff that's really important is not the most urgent. Mm. So you have to make time for it or it's not going to get done. So powerful. And so I love that the theme really of making time for traction sounds like intention, like being intentional about where you're putting your time. It's so interesting because I've been doing some level of this. I wouldn't give myself an A as a a student of Nereal now that I'm listening to you. But I would say that uh, I do schedule time for thinking. And I think that a lot of people tend to not be realistic and know themselves. Like, for example, when I write a column for Forbes, um, which I should ask you about your book for, um, you know, it's, it's just so interesting because I know that most people think it takes me an hour or two to write a blog post, but it usually takes me another hour or two to walk around my house, overcome resistance and get the creative idea that I have to write about. And so I think that one of the biggest blocks probably for other people who are making time for traction is maybe in not knowing themselves, not knowing what kind of time they do or don't need to do something. Um, do you have any thoughts on like resistance as it relates to this? Because it feels so real for so many people and really it, it could just be a distraction. I don't know. No, I think it's a terrific, uh, it's a terrific point. What I, what I like to tell people to focus on is the input, not the output. So for, for most folks, uh, you know, they say, okay, well, you know, I, I sat down at my desk and I didn't get any ideas. So I went to do something else. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I planned for something to happen, but the thing didn't happen when I planned for it. Uh, this happened to me with sleep that I made time in my day to make sure I got to bed on time so that I could, you know, the research is is pretty unequivocal that we need quality sleep. Uh, and so I would make time to go to bed on time, but then every night at 4am, I would wake up and I would, I would just tell myself, well, you know, what happened? I planned time for it. And yet here I am not sleeping and I would start getting stressed about it and I would get anxious and uh, my presentation tomorrow is going to suffer and my writing is going to go off track and all this bad stuff is going to happen because I'm not asleep. And it turns out 
that the number one source of insomnia is worrying about insomnia. Yes. And that's exactly what I was doing to myself. And so I looked into the literature about this. I read up on it. And I, it turns out that using a simple mantra really helped me out. Here's what I did. So now every time I would wake up at 4 a.m., I would tell myself the body gets what the body needs, meaning I already did the work. I am here in bed on time to get my eight hours of sleep. What the body does is it's business, and the body gets what the body needs. And I would just repeat that mantra. And by doing that, I started to relax. I started to not ruminate about the problem anymore. And you know where this story leads. I could get back to sleep. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so it's very similar when it comes to the writing process. If you don't plan the time for your butt to be in that chair, then you're definitely not going to do the writing. Right, for sure. And this is what Pressfield talks about as well, with the, around the resistance. That if you're, if if you if you say, oh, I'm waiting to be inspired, I'm waiting to be in the mood, you're never going to do the job. So you have to at least plan the input, the time. The output is out of your control. You can't always plan the output. You can't sit down and say, oh my god, this is going to be a Pulitzer Prize winning article. You can't plan that. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But for sure, if you don't plan the time, it's not going to happen. If I don't plan the time to be in my chair to write. I'm not going to write. If I don't plan time to get adequate sleep, I'm not going to sleep. My job is to plan the input. The output will come later. Mm, so good. Okay. I can't imagine how many people listening right now are thinking about how they think about sleeping and don't sleep because of it. So great point. <laughs> All it takes is pot potentially a mantra. And um, talk to me about your third point about external triggers. What can we tell everybody about that? Sure. So the next step, so after we master the internal triggers, we make time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. And external triggers, you know, are these pings and dings and rings, all of these things in our environment that can lead us to either traction or distraction. How can they lead us to traction? How can they be good? Well, if an alarm tells you to do something you planned, well, that's fantastic, right? If, if you get a ping on your phone and it says, hey, it's time to work out, it's time for that meeting, it's time for that date, and that's what you plan to do, wonderful. Do it. That's traction. But if you're you know, with your daughter and you get a, a, a ping on your phone when you plan to be with someone you love and now you're checking your phone as opposed to being fully present, well, now that led you towards distraction. So the question to ask is whether an external trigger is serving you or are you serving it? And if you are serving the external trigger, your job is to get rid of that external trigger, to hack back. And why do I use the word hack back? Because it's clear that these devices are designed to hack your attention. That's how they are built. And I know as being an industry insider, that's how they are designed. And that's a good thing, right? We want the fitness app or the education app or the good apps to get our attention to help us move towards traction. But the ones that don't serve us, we don't have to live like this. We can hack back. So there's some very simple things you can do to change, for example, you know, uh, hack back your phone so it's not constantly pinging and dinging you. It turns out two-thirds of people with a smartphone, two-thirds, never change the notification settings. Seriously, can, can we really say that technology is so addictive when we haven't taken five minutes to change the notification settings? This is kindergarten stuff, right? This is, this is common sense. So I, I devote just a couple pages to how to make an indistractable phone, how to make an indistractable laptop. But where we find uh, these external triggers uh, really cause distraction are the distractions we don't think about, right? So there's a whole section on how to hack back meetings, how to hack back email. Uh, and, and one of the most pernicious and common forms of distraction comes to us from the open floor plan office. Yes, uh, tell us about that. Adapted, 
right? Mm-hmm. Companies have adopted these because they save a lot of money. That's the bottom line. You know, they say it's oh, it encourages creativity. Yeah, whatever. They do it because they save a lot of money, not having to give everyone their own office. Uh, and and so okay, I get it. It helps the bottom line. But we can hack back the external triggers in an open floor plan office as well. Here's what we do. We take, so remember that the, the nurses I told you about earlier? Yes. So what that study found was a technique that these nurses could use that reduced prescription mistakes by 88%. Wow. 88% reduction in prescription mistakes. And the solution was not some multi-million dollar program. It wasn't some fancy new technology. It was cheap plastic vests. These plastic vests that the nurses wore that told their colleagues that a nursing that a, that a, a, a dosing round was in progress and that they were not to be disturbed. And that simple practice of putting on that vest almost eliminated these medication mistake problems. So what can we learn from that? How can we use that in an open floor plan office? Well, what we do is we use what's called a screen sign. A screen sign, it comes inside every copy of my book. It's this piece of cardstock. You pull it out of the book. You fold it into thirds. It's bright red. It has a stop sign on it. And it says, I'm indistractable at the moment. Please come back later. <laughs> and so we're sending an explicit message to our colleagues. Just give me a few minutes, okay? I'm working right now. And I know some people listening are thinking, well, that's why I put on headphones, right? Doesn't that tell people I'm busy? No, it's not very effective because here's the thing. Everybody thinks you're watching YouTube videos. So we want to send a very clear message that it's okay to ask for a little quiet time, right? For a little time for me to think, for me to focus while I'm doing my work. Not all day, but just for you know a little bit of time in my day, maybe 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, so that I can do focused work without distraction. That's how we hack back. Okay, so helpful. And, you know, can you tell me a little bit about emails, like some just practical tips for anybody listening? Because I know that some people feel very much so like they're held hostage by their job and they're kind of at the mercy of their boss, employer, manager, where they don't really have a choice but to be on email. In fact, I had a client just the other day who had a new baby and she works from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. She gets home at 7 and her employer said, we really need you on email after work. And she was like, I need to feed my baby and and put it to bed. So there's just so little boundaries in the workplace and so little permission. Are there some small yeah. tips that you can offer or even conversations that people can have to improve their work product with email? Yeah, so let, let me, as opposed to getting super tactical on email, let, let me talk about, I think, what the bigger problem is, especially in the really sad case of, of your friend with a baby here. This is, I would argue that the real problem with, uh, in your friend's case, wasn't, email, uh, the real problem was a horrible workplace culture. And I think that's what we need to think about that, you know, there's a lot of data that shows that there's a type of workplace that literally creates depression and anxiety disorder. And this is the studies of, of Stansfield and Candy. And what they found is that the, the confluence of two factors, a work environment with high expectations and low control. This is the kind of work environment that is literally driving people crazy. Mm. And what do people do when they don't feel in control? They send more emails. They call more superfluous meetings because they're struggling to get control over something that is uncontrollable because of the workplace culture. And so there's a whole – so half of Indistractable, the book, is really about what you can do as an individual. But the fact is if you've worked in a big company, you realize there's only so much you can do. Because you work in an enterprise and and the environment shapes your behaviors. So the other half of the book is about what you can do 
to help shape company culture and how company culture has to change in order to help people become uh, truly indistractable. Now, what we find is that the real problem is not the technology, it's a dysfunctional workplace culture. Yes. And when the culture changes and becomes a place where people can talk about this problem, then the problem of distraction goes away. A uh, good, good example of this is at Slack, right? Slack is one of these tools. It's the world's largest group chat app. And people, when I was you know, researching my book, I kept hearing from folks about how Slack was so distracting. It was keeping them at work, you know, tethered all the time to, to the workplace, super distracting. Totally. So I went to pay, pay Slack a visit, and I went to visit headquarters, and I was amazed to find that that's not a problem that they have at Slack. <laughs> you, know, you know, Slack, if anybody, nobody uses Slack more than Slack, right? <laughs> so you would think if the technology was a problem, these should be the most distracted people on earth. Hmm. But that's not what it, that's not what I found. Because at Slack, they have these three attributes of a company with good company culture. Number one, they allow for psychological safety. Psychological safety is when you can talk about problems without fear of retribution. So that's number one. Number two, they have a forum for people to talk about their concerns. And number three, they have uh, the, the, the company leadership exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. So when I walked into Slack company headquarters, I saw a big sign in, in bright pink neon that says, work hard and go home. Wow, beautiful. Because Everybody in the company, from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, believes in this principle that if we are to get people to do their best work, we have to give them time to focus, time away from work as well, time to focus on their family, on, on, the, on their health, other things as well. And so in the book, I tell you about how you can transform the company culture because that is the root cause of the problem when it comes to distraction at work. That's so profound. Work hard and go home. What a joy. I feel like people are going to listen to this episode and be applying to Slack. U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Job Offer Academy, our e-course to help you land a new job you love. So if you're sick of applying for jobs and never hearing back, and you'd like to try a free version of our job hunting course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash job offer. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job offer. Now let's get back to this week's episode. What do you think it is about? Because you know what? I have found that um, I'm in a group of a lot of um, amazing women who have influencer sort of businesses and we are in a Slack together. And every time I turn around, there's a new group of people saying, let's put a Slack channel together. So what are some, um, what do you think is happening for the user versus the people who have created it? Yeah, so I think there's some some rules around how to use group chat the right way, and there's a there's a whole chapter in the book, but I'll give you some some quick tips. Uh, one rule that Jason Fried uh, talked about, and he's the, the founder of Basecamp, so he actually built one of these tools, is that you want to think of uh, group chat like a hot tub, right? Hot tubs are great, right? They can be a great place to socialize with other people, but you don't want to stay in your hot tub all day. Right? You get pruny and gross when you're in a hot tub all day. So like a hot tub, group chat is something you get into and you get out of. And so like any synchronous communication channel, you, you don't leave it on all day long because it's, it's just too distracting. You, can, you won't be able to think and do anything else if you constantly have this pinging and dinging from your, from your group chat channel. Uh, and so what we do, the second thing is that we schedule time for it. 
Okay, so in your day, you have time on your calendar, just like you might have time for your meetings or checking email or whatever else you need to do in your day, time to think. You also have time, however time, how much time is, is uh, consistent with your values, to check your, your group chat channels. And in that case, there's nothing wrong with it. So again, now we're turning distraction into traction by making time for it. Okay. And uh, as far as corporate culture, cultures go, I know that you probably did a lot of uh, studying of this. And I would love to know just some indicators of what you've seen generally in good cultures and, and, and then also in the not so good cultures. Like, what are some indicators? And then anybody who's listening that's a manager or a leader in their company, maybe you have some suggestions for what they can do to kind of get their power back as a culture or make suggestions at work. Sure, sure. So, um, the, the, the first thing is around the psychological safety idea that we see in company after company where, where we see a blow up, right? If you see what happened, you know, the disaster that happened at Boeing with the 787 Max or Enron or, I mean, the list of, of corporate malfeasance where wherever there's a, a problem in the company, always somebody knew about it, right? Somebody knew what was going on and they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it because they were afraid of getting fired. Yes. And so it's these corporate unmentionables like the fact Hey, does anybody like being on email 24-7? No, everybody hates it. Even the managers and the bosses hate it. They want to go to basketball games with their kids too. They want to have time with their spouse without worrying of constantly having to be connected. Why can't anybody talk about it? We can't talk about it because that is the problem, right? The fact that we can't talk about it is the problem itself. So I profile a company by the name of the Boston Consulting Group. It's a big three consulting firm like McKinsey and Bain. I actually worked there. It was my first job out of college. And when I worked there, uh, this was in the uh, this was in the year 2001, and it was a very, very hard place to work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Very hard driving, always on culture. You were just expected to always be connected. And uh, very high employee turnover. People left very quickly, and myself included. And they, they had this complete cultural transformation when they had a researcher from Harvard by the name of Leslie Perlow come in and try and give them a challenge. She gave them a challenge to say, hey, what if I took one case team and I posed them this question? What would it take to give everyone on this team one night off per week? She called it predictable time off, PTO, predictable time off. One night off a week to go to the gym, to be free of your phone, to go have dinner with your significant other, whatever the case might be. What would that take? And at first, everyone said, no, can't do that here. We're always on. You know, we have a distributed workforce and international clientele. We can't do that here. And then she said, okay, well, what, let's try. Let's try. Let's, let's assume that a client came to us and wanted this, okay? You know, you work with IBM and Delta Airlines. Well, what if they asked you to do this? Well, okay, let's, let's think of it hypothetically then. And the team came up with all kinds of tactical solutions, but the tactical solutions are not what's important here. What's important was the insight that by talking about the problem, they could solve the problem, which indicates that that is the real issue. And in fact, when they started talking about this problem of distraction and the problem of how can we give people one predictable night off per week, there were all kinds of other skeletons in the closet. People now felt safe to talk about how to improve customer service and how to improve all kinds of things in the company which today is now part of the, a, a company-wide strategy. Now everyone in the company does the same practice because they understood that giving people psychological safety, meaning they could talk about their problems without fear of retribution, as well as a forum to talk about their problems is critically important. And so if you are in a management position, that is certainly something you can do today. 
But even if you're not in a management position, you know, you can become indistractable yourself, set a good example, start using the screen sign, start using time blocking, use these techniques that I described in the book for yourself, and then see if you can start small, right? So the last page of the book is a book club discussion guide. So maybe you can sit down with some of your teammates and just, you know, hey, let's do a book club with this book and see where it goes. You know, let me do the convincing. I spent five years researching this. You don't want to be the person who's telling people what to do. Maybe just start a discussion and see where that goes. It's going to take a while, right? This kind of change is slow. But if you look at a, a case study like BCG, it can be something that affects the entire organization if given some time. Wow. Wow. So powerful. I remember interviewing for McKinsey and they asked me how many golf balls fit in an airplane in my interview. And I was like, I don't think this is going to be a fit for me. Um, so I, I salute you, Nir, for your job at Boston Consulting Group. <laughs> what a shift. And, and, you know, I'm not going to make any assumptions that you working there, you know, years later has turned into a book called Hooked and Indistractable, but, you know, very interesting correlation potentially. I don't, I don't know if I could have uh, done what I did without having some bumps along the way for sure. Yeah, definitely. It was a pretty hard life. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So for somebody who is maybe in a toxic work environment now, but at what point do you say you just got to leave? Like this isn't your problem and it's hurting your output. It's hurting your spirit because I know a lot of people, it's like they are scared to talk. And even at the highest level of leadership, the vice presidents are scared to go to the CEO. Um, is that the kind of company where it's just a lost cause and you just have to go? Like at what point do you draw that line? It could be. It could be. I mean, I, I think there, you know, I, I, there is no magic potion that you can sprinkle on a company and reform the company culture. Uh, uh, many companies can reform. It does require leadership at some point. It doesn't mean we can't strive to become indestructible ourselves and do everything we can do as individuals. But yes, I think there are some companies that just have a toxic, sick work culture. Uh, and the, the data is pretty conclusive that that type of work culture uh, leads to some some really profound uh, effects on our psychological well-being. And our health. And so sometimes, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and sometimes the right answer is to leave. Now, it's not up to me or anyone else to tell anyone whether they should leave an organization, but it is worth being aware of, you know, if it's the kind of work culture that day after day you feel miserable, you feel out of control, you feel you lack agency to change your lot in life, that does take a toll, and it's worth considering. Maybe there is a, a place with a better work culture to to explore. Yeah, you know, I know that lack a lack of agency and feeling powerless is one of the number one root causes of burnout, and there's a few others that yeah. I've kind of discovered in my business, but that was certainly the case for me when uh, my business was at its peak, making millions of dollars on e-courses. It was like I lost a lot of that money because I was so burnt out feeling a lack of power that I just, you know, checked out completely. And so I totally see the power or, or the lack of power that happens as a result of this sort of environment. And I want to ask you before we get into your final point about flow states, about creativity, because I know that the more indistractable become, the more hope somebody might have to be able to get into that flow state. Did you do any research or have any findings for people with creativity as it relates to not being distracted? Sure. So, so it's very difficult to do our best work if we're constantly, you know, uh, flying from one task to the next uh, because uh, because something is distracting us. And so, w w it's very difficult to get into that flow state unless you have that focused work time. So that's that's pretty conclusive. Well, what I also wanted to explore, you know, flow. I, I think flow has been a little bit oversold because yeah. where flow really is effective is with stuff you already like to do. Right. So if you're an artist and you get into flow while you paint or if you're, you know, uh, an athlete, you get to flow while you're playing. That's, that's wonderful. What I was really interested in is what do you do 
about the stuff you don't like to do. I, I've never heard of anyone getting into flow while doing their taxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where I want flow, right? <laughs> and, and, and so I give you techniques on how to what's called reimagine the task, how to see the task differently so that we don't have this expectation of, oh, my God, time passes, you know, and everything is so easy. This is kind of a, 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 a dream. It's not real. Uh, it, it, and so we don't we shouldn't expect that we can turn everything into flow. A lot of stuff will just not put you in a flow state. We need other tactics. Mm, and I think that that's like a lot of things in life. It's not about finding the thing. It's about just removing yourself from the things that it's not, you know? Um, right. And, and, and there's a combination of tactics. The idea with the book is that there's lots and lots of tools you can use and techniques you can use. Some work, you know, you have to use the right tool for the job. Uh, so it's about all four steps of you know the the uh, mastering the internal triggers making time for traction hacking back the external triggers and then finally making sure that we can prevent distraction with pacts that's wonderful okay and that's the final point that i wanted to share with everybody so those those of you who are like me and your note takers um, master the internal triggers make time for traction hack back external triggers and now prevent distraction with pacts tell us a little bit about this near Absolutely. So this is about what's called a pre-commitment. And a pre-commitment has been shown in thousands of studies to be a very, very effective way to make sure you do what you say you're going to do. And it's, it's really about, about planning ahead so that when you are likely to get distracted, there's something preventing you from doing something you don't want to do. And so there are three types of pacts. We have what's called an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. An effort pact just puts some bit of work in between you and the thing you don't want to do. So when I was having trouble getting to bed every night because I kept scrolling and scrolling, uh, you know, uh, email and Slack channels and whatever, I went to the hardware store and I bought myself a $10 outlet timer. And this outlet timer turns off my internet every night at 10 p.m. <laughs> so now I've made this effort pack because I know I could turn it back on, right? I could go underneath my desk and fiddle with the setting and turn it back on. But now I put some effort in between me and something I don't want to do. And the good news is that there's all sorts of technology out there that we can use to help us build these packs. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of tools that can block distraction, like focus and rescue time and all these tools that I talk about in the book that, that you can use. And the good news is the vast majority of them are absolutely free. Then we can use what's called a price pact, where we put some kind of financial cost, some disincentive to not doing what it is we say we're going to do. This comes out of research around smoking cessation, that one of the most effective, in fact, the most effective smoking cessation study ever exhibited was one where people put some skin in the game. They put some money in a pot, and if they didn't stop smoking, then they would lose their money. And it turns out this can be a very effective tactic. Now, it's something we want to do last, okay? It's something we want to do as a last resort after we've done those other three big steps we talked about earlier. This is the last step. And then the other type of, of uh, pre-commitment that we can use is what's called an identity pact. And this is really fascinating because, you know, I'm not uh, a big fan of willpower. Uh, there's actually a lot of debate right now uh, in the philosophy and psychology community whether free will even exists. So I'm not a fan of, of willpower. I'm not a fan of self-control and self-discipline. I'm a much bigger fan of systems. And what we can do is impart systems in our life that, that help us stay on track. And one of these is to form a new identity. Uh, just like how you know a, a, a vegetarian doesn't wake up every day and say, ooh, I wonder if I'm going to have a hamburger today. No, vegetarians don't eat meat. It's who they are. It's part of their identity. 
And we can do something very similar when it comes to becoming indistractable. That's why I titled the book Indistractable, because it sounds like indestructible. That's a superpower. Mm. And so the idea here is when we call ourselves indistractable, when we tell others that we are indistractable, when we let folks know, hey, I'm sorry, I don't return emails within 30 seconds because I'm indistractable. I use this weird screen sign to let people know when I'm doing focus work, I'm indistractable. It's part of who I am. And why is it so different than calling yourself a vegetarian or a religious uh, a person who abides by a particular religion and wears particular clothes? It's no difference. It's part of your identity. And it turns out that when you do that, you don't need to expend a lot of willpower and self-control. It's who you are. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Uh, Nira, this has been so insightful. Where can everybody who's listening find your book, follow you, and learn from you? Thank you. Yeah, so my book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, and it's available wherever books are sold. And if you uh, go to indistractable.com, I have a complimentary video course as well as an 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the print edition, but it's yours. It's complimentary. It's all at indistractable.com, and my website is near and far, near spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com what a little creative human you are near thank you so much for (laughs) making the time i'll have to be writing about this for forbes too the world needs it and i really appreciate you oh likewise thank you this is a lot of fun thank you Hey friends, um, if you're anything like me, you love a good research episode. I love near y'all. I was so compelled by this episode that I decided I'm going to have more professors and researchers on the show in the future because, you know, I know that it's really challenging to generalize and fit us all into a box. We're all little snowflakes so different in who we are and how we be in the world. But I think there's so much truth um, that researchers can find through studying people in the way that near has found you know, with all of his research in being indistractable or getting hooked onto a product. And I loved how he was talking so deeply about Slack and how he was showing that so many people use the tool to be distracted, but the people there don't stand for that. And also all of his conversation around having a toxic job. So I wanted to start off by talking about when you should stay versus when you should go and life purpose, because Uh, One thing that I didn't touch on with Nir was this concept of being distracted because you don't like where you are. And it's not necessarily that you're easily distracted. It's that you just don't want to be there. And if that's the case and you feel like, you know, you're you're in a job right now where you just want to scroll social media and do basically anything but your job because you just don't want to do it, it's not a fit for you. I want to neutralize that right now with you and remind you that, you know, your life and your likes and your interests and who you are, it's as simple as somebody's taste palette. Like I love certain fruits. Like I love apple. I love watermelon, but I don't like honeydew and I don't like plum. Am I wrong because I don't like honeydew or plum? Not at all. Um, And I think that's so much the case when it comes to your career. Um, If you're good at something, it's just because it aligns with your skills. If you're not, it's because it doesn't align with your skills. It doesn't mean you're not talented. It doesn't mean that you're not good at contributing. It might just mean you're in the wrong office. You're in the wrong desk chair. And I think it's so important that we honor ourselves by really being honest about who we are with ourselves and really being honest that if we are highly distracted in our jobs, either we're going through a burnout or we don't want to be where we are 
or we're not being conscious about the life that we're creating for ourselves. And there's so much power in being intentional and choosing how you want your day to look and how you want your life to look. And I love everything Nir said about pre-commitments and he shared so much for you to take action on. But what I want to share with you and remind you right now is to really dig deeper and ask yourself, are you in a job that doesn't align for you and that's why you're so distractible? And if you're not and you're simply feeling itchy or bored in your job, but you like the career path you've chosen, one invitation I want to make for you is to consider, you know, the possibility that you can also entertain, uh, you know, whether you should stay or go. And one of my biggest indicators for somebody who should go is someone who has maxed out on all growth opportunity possible in their role. So if you're sitting in a job right now and you're easily distracted and you do feel like you're doing work that aligns with your purpose or what you really belong doing in the workforce, um, but you're feeling really bored, usually that's feedback that either you're going through burnout or you've exhausted all growth in the role. And to me, that is the number one reason to leave your job. If you're in a job right now where your core skill set is communication or um, research or um, you know whatever it is, doing financial models, math, whatever you are doing in your current job, I think it's so important to ask yourself, have you maxed out on all growth possible in that job? And if so, if yes, if you have, then my invitation is to really ask yourself, is it time to go? And another topic that Nir talked about was toxic workplace cultures. If you are in a culture right now that expects you to go against your human body and be on all the time, the first question to ask yourself is, have you tried to set a boundary? And if you haven't, I want to offer you a quick conversation that you can have with your manager. Um, what it could look like is this. You can get into their office. And um, episode two with Carter Cast on U-Turn Podcast, former CEO of Walmart, is really good for this. But going into their office and saying, hey, I, I just want to have a quick appointment with you. And saying to them, hey, here's the projects that I have on deck. This is what I'm working on now. Here are some things on the periphery, things that I want to get to once I'm done with these. And here are some other things that you've mentioned. Um, based on what I have on deck, I see myself being able to get to these things that I have on the periphery by this time. Um, as far as the ideas that you have, do you want me to shift some of the things that I have on deck right now or on the periphery? Or could you just help me uh, prioritize so that I make sure I'm using my energy in a way that works for you and for the company? Uh, that's a really good way to say, here's my time. Here's what I'm working on. Help me help you be at my best in my performance. Um, if if they are asking you to do a level of work that is requiring you uh, outside of your workday nonstop to be on email, it is totally fair for you to go in and say, hey, you know, um, I really value my work. I really value my contribution. I also want to just make sure I'm taking care of my health and my well-being. I noticed that I've been on email um, most nights after work until I go to bed and it, it hasn't allowed me to have any time, um, you know, at home recharging at night, having dinner or just being able to cook dinner at all. Um, and so I wanted to check in and see if you were just, if we were just in a surge right now and extra busy, if you've thought about getting extra support, um, because I know that it's my intention is for everybody um, on the team to be performing well. And, and I worry that if I'm working this hard, that everybody probably is. And I know it's not sustainable and that people are going to burn out or it's going to be harder to retain everybody. So what can I do or, or what can I learn from you to, you know, maybe better create some structure in my schedule? I think coming to your communication in a collaborative way is so powerful. 
Um, and whenever you make your communication just about you and your personal life and you sound like you're complaining, people don't want to hear it. But if you're able to ask out of curiosity, show them what you're working on and ask in a collaborative way for them to support you and coming up with ways to prioritize, um, it's really, really powerful communication tools. So um, there's so much here. I could talk to you forever about being indistractable, but I think that the biggest hack to being indistractable is having a purpose that you believe in so much that it lights you up on fire because let's face it, anybody who's come to me low on energy, the first thought I have is, are they just low on purpose? Because when you're working on purpose, um, it gives you so much charge and you find new wells of energy you didn't even know. And you're in such a flow state. And that was what inspired me to create my career clarity lab course. And for those of you who are wanting to focus on your clarity and really get connected to the right career path for you, if you haven't checked out the career clarity lab course over at careerclaritylab.com, shameless plug, it's such good content. Um, and if you want something even more affordable, I believe the course is not much more than a hundred bucks, but something more affordable. My book will be coming out in a year with how to get clear on your best career path. I'm so excited to share it with you. Um, and in the meantime, let me know what you thought of this episode at Ashley Stahl on the gram. I'm sending you love and I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at uturnpodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has it on the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.